What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. I'm your host, Jamie Gruber. And today's guest, Brian Estes, is a multi-year GoBundance member, entrepreneur, investor, father, husband, you name it. He's out of just outside of Jackson, Mississippi. And Brian, it's great to see you, brother. Tribe listeners, I have an extremely exciting announcement for all of you. Do you want to come hang out with Cody Sanchez, David Osborne, David Green, Rich Roll, and even yours truly down in Austin, Texas? Well, let's do it. May 1st, 2nd, and 3rd, for the first time ever, GoBundance, the exclusive millionaire membership group, is opening up an event to anyone, man, woman, millionaire or not, and we're calling it the Austin Entrepreneurial Summit. At the AES, you'll meet all those people I mentioned, plus GoBundance members on both the men's and women's side, and I'll be there hanging out the entire time. Every event I've ever attended for GoBundance has given me a disproportionate return on the money spent and the time spent to get there. And this is the biggest one that GoBundance has ever done. So if you're a member, not a member, and you're looking to supercharge the second part of your year 2024, this event in May is a great way to get that all kickstarted. Go to GoBundance.com slash AES right now for early bird pricing for members and guests. And warning, the power of GoBundance events is that it holds you accountable long after you're gone to achieving whatever goals you've set. So this event will change your life. GoBundance.com slash AES. I'll see you there. Let's get back to the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Can't tell by the accent that you're in Mississippi. Can't at all, huh? right? I, yeah. I was going New York. I thought Bronx. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe not. Manhattan, yeah. So. <laughs> all right. So you've been married for a long time. I wanted to start here because most guys that I get on here, I shouldn't say most, a lot of guys that I get on here are, you know, 30s to 40s. They've got kids that are, you know, still maybe around the age of 10, give or take. But you're on the other side of that. Your kid, you have two boys that are 19. You have another son that's 14. You and your wife have married nearly 30 years. What's the staying power? in your relationship? How do you get to 29 years successfully? Wow. That's a good question. I think dedication, I, I think it's just dedication that we're not getting divorced. I mean, that's not even an option for us. And somebody told us really early in our marriage that that's, that just needs to be the mindset that you have that, hey, no matter what, we're not getting divorced. Now, that doesn't give anybody an opportunity to go out and do what you want to do and treat your spouse the way you want to treat them. But the point is, is that was just never an option for us. I mean, we just always felt like no matter what, what we're going to get through whatever obstacles are thrown our way. And, and I don't, I mean, I, I know we talk a lot about go abundance about mindset and I, and I believe marriage is a mindset just like anything else that, you know, we're dedicated to each other. And, and I will tell you this, both of uh, my wife and I both came from divorced parents and we both had some heartburn about it. You know, we both uh, love our, our stepmothers and all that kind of stuff. And, some blended families, but at the end of the day, I mean, that's not what we wanted for ourselves. And so I think that helped a lot along the way, knowing that divorce was just not an option for us. I mean, we, we wanted to have a marriage that lasted and we wanted our kids to grow up in a, in a household with two parents because we didn't, we didn't get that luxury. Do you recall? Uh, I think that has a lot to do with it. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Yeah. You just state the commitment. Do you yeah. recall, and I'm sure there, I'm sure there are multiple, but you know, maybe a dark or the darkest moment over the last 29 years. Not that again, I, I don't think it's where maybe your marriage was threatened to be. You you've committed to not allowing for for divorce, but I'm kind of curious how you've navigated some of the down moments, and if you could point out maybe one of those. Sure. Um, well, man, the first year to you know was was rough because you know like anybody else money and we fought over money and we fought over things. And, you know, I had quit my accounting job. I mean, just flat walked in and just said, I'm I'm done, you know, and, and, you know, we talk a lot about leaving your W2. And I mean, I just made, <laughs> I just walked in and snapped and just said, I'm out of here. And, 
that caused a little bit of ripple in our marriage because like my wife's like a lot of other women, they're looking for security and, you know, that should have been better thought out. But uh, so that, that was a little bit of a wrinkle, but we got through it and and through hustle and hard work. And I was able to to shift into real estate and do some good things there. And, um, uh, but I would tell you probably the darkest part of our marriage probably had to do uh, with the fact that uh, uh, we were unable to have kids for a while. And, uh, uh, you know, that's why we're that's why we're, you know, 50 something years old in our early 50s. And we have two 19 year olds and a 14 year old. But we tried to get pregnant probably for, gosh, five years. And we did. I mean, I, I can't t- I mean, even when my real estate career was was a little shaky and had a lot of interest notes that were coming due, we were spending twenty to twenty five thousand dollars doing IVFs and artificial inseminations. And and if you know, if you know my wife, she's very much I mean, she loves kids. And I mean, that was just her dream is to be a mom, you know, and, and a wife. And so those were some dark times in our marriage. And I think she, you know, we both kind of felt like, you know, what does it look like for us if we don't have kids? And I think that really, really bothered her to a point where she kind of withdrew just a little bit, you know, and I kind of felt like uh, she felt, you know, she kind of felt less of a woman because we were not able to have kids. Well, you know, I guess on the fourth time we did IVF, so it'll tell you how much money we had spent at this point. Yeah. Uh, it worked and we had twin boys and, uh, and then four and a half years later, she called and, and on her own had a third child. I, I would just look back to those days and tell you that those were some hard days because I kind of felt like, you know, that if we had not had kids, it, it, our marriage could have been a little different, to be honest with you. I, I don't know. I don't know. And I'd hate to think about what would our life be like without kids, but I think my wife felt like if she didn't have kids that she just felt less of a woman. So I had to navigate through that in our marriage and realize that she was very emotional at that time. And, you know, so, uh, so I would just tell you those, those were the days that I look back at my marriage and realize those were, those were some tough times. Yeah. What, what, with the benefit of hindsight, cause you were, you know, what, 20 years younger at this point, what, what was your role or how did you, how did you manage that with your wife who's going through all of this? And would you do anything differently knowing what you know now being, you know, look, I'm 44, not 54, but I know I've calmed yeah. down in a lot of ways, you know, from my twenties, sure, sure. you know, so I'm curious, like, you know, being a baby, a bit more aware and sensitive or whatever at 54 than you might've been at 34. What, what lessons do you have that you might've, you might've done things differently, if at all. Uh, from well, how, you, how you handle it. I can answer that. Uh, I was able to bury myself in my work because it's so easy for, for hard charging real estate people to do, right? I mean, real estate's an easy career to bury your head in what you're doing. And I probably did not do a great job in the beginning of really recognizing, you know, that she was depressed a little bit, you know, and, and, and so I had to kind of snap out of that and realize that, you know, it's easy for me to sit here and say, Hey, don't worry, don't worry. And that was kind of my answer was, Hey, look, we're going to get through this. And, and then, you know, then I would leave and go spend, you know, nine, 10 hours a day in, in wow. doing real estate deals. And she's kind of was left to kind of, you know, wonder, what kind of per, you know mother she could be or it, it would would she ever even be a mother so I, I was very insensitive probably early in that process and uh luckily I, I luckily I was able to recognize that that you know I was gonna have to I was really gonna have to spend more time with her I was really gonna have to be more dedicated to making sure that that um uh that we did everything that we could to, to have kids I mean I would have spent another fifty to seventy five thousand dollars if that's what it took so yeah. you know and I probably 
probably, I'm not going to lie to you, you know, I'm griping, I'm sure, the whole time about how much this was costing, you know. And, you know, you got to remember back then, I mean, I had made some money and I had a little bit of net worth, but still trying to get, you know, still trying to get where I felt like we were financially free. And here it is, I'm dropping, you know, $15,000 on IVF, you know, invert. And if you don't know what that is, it's in vitro fertilization and I know most people know, but, you know, and I mean, man, when you, you know, the, the, even 20 years ago, the medicines that you had to buy were $3,000 just for one IVF procedure. I mean, that didn't include the doctor. So complaining about that and the money and not recognizing the the emotional toll that was taken on my wife was probably my shortcoming. I want to ask this question in two parts, starting with this one. This could be a quick answer today. As you sit here, do you feel like you've had the kind of success that you wanted to have? when you were working and doing all the things 20 years ago, do you feel like you're, you're where you'd like to be? No, I I can. Yeah. I feel like I probably should have been further along. You know, if I, if, if 20 years ago, I would have thought where I was then, I probably would be much further ahead to date and whether or not it's my fault or whether or not it was just unreasonable, probably a little bit of both. Did it require, you mentioned working 10 hour days and I really want to speak to me, 40 year old, I have eight and five year old kids, a 35 year old, 30 year old member, GoBundance member or not member, whoever's listening to this, because I know for me, you know, it's, it's a put your head down, get it done. This is what I got to do to secure my family for the future. Like I'm doing this for the future. And I, I get into this one, I, I wonder sometimes like, I put in eight hours or nine hours or 10 hours on whatever it is. If it was six or five, or if I, if I didn't have to spend the money on in vitro in your case, I guess my, my question is for you to be where you are, whether you could have been further ahead or not, you're, you've had success. You are successful in some way, you know, especially to a lot of people, you would be viewed as being very successful. If you hadn't put in 10 hours when your wife was struggling emotionally and you've dialed it back in that season with the benefit of hindsight, would your results today be any worse? Do you think? Yes. Yeah. It took the grind, especially early on. It took the grind to get to get to a point where I could even dial it back. And, you know, luckily, I guess the advantage of having kids later in life were that I was able to put the grind in much earlier. And, you know, my wife never worked the day the kids were born, the twins were born. And would that have been possible if we had had kids five years earlier? Absolutely not. Great point. So my wife and I even look back now realizing that, you know, believe me, we would not go to that dark place where we didn't have, you know, where we struggled. But but the point is, is that having kids later in life allowed me to put the grind in before they were born, have some success, have a business, had ca- you know, have cash flow. So once the ba- once the twins were born, you know, she she let her office know that she was not coming back. So love it, love it. You know. Today you run, if I'm not mistaken, the exiting your W exiting. I'm sorry, exiting day to day operations of your business micro tribe. Is that accurate? Correct. Correct. Why do you run that micro tribe? Well, at first it was it was because it was something that I was going through in my own company. And I I just, you know, I think Camille had mentioned it, it would be a great micro tribe and I seconded it. And then all of a sudden it got to be where I was the the leader for it. And that, gosh, it's probably been two, two and a half years ago, I guess now, but probably, you know, not as, I mean, I have gone through that process in my own company at this point. I still have a lot to offer, um, but that micro tribe seems to be, you know, where 
people come for two or three times and then they get what they need and they kind of roll out. But but I really did it, honestly, just because it was something that I was going through in my own company at the time. And, you know, I'm a great visionary. I, I have a lot of great ideas. I'm good at putting deals together. But but I felt myself really being dragged down in the operation side of things. And I think that's obviously pretty common for a lot of people in GoBundance. Yep. I don't think a lot of people in GoBundance struggle with good vision. I think what they do is they struggle with how to make that vision a reality. Amen, brother. Amen. What um, yeah. what is your, Describe your business. And then if you could take me through some of the steps that you took to get out of day-to-day operations. Sure. All right. Well, uh, two things. Number one, I, I have two businesses, two primary businesses. I still have an investment business. I've invested in real estate, shopping centers, office buildings, small multifamily. But uh, but the Estes Group is a commercial uh, real estate company. We we manage about a million and a half square feet of commercial and industrial space. We also do a lot of investment sales. You know where we sell shopping centers and multifamily properties, and that's probably at the core of what we do is management and represent investors uh, buying and selling real estate. Then I have another company called Estes Manning. And I have a partner, Brandy, in that company, and, and we manage about 1,400 apartment units and uh, all around the Gulf South. And uh, the good thing is when I started that business with Brandy, I mean, that was that was the way we were going to, we designed that business from day one. She handles everything on the operation side, and I handle everything on the business development, the vision. I mean, we do share the visionary side of things, but I deal with a lot of the clients and help them on, on a lot of their asset management stuff. Like, hey, how do you, you know, you know, buy this property. Here's what needs to happen to to get it from from five million to eight million. You know, I, I cut my teeth into distressed side of real estate and just bought a lot of properties from foreclosures and CMBS and and all that kind of stuff. So so obviously this time this season in the real estate market, you know, I'm kind of licking my chops because the distressed side is where I really made all my money. But um, but the Estes Group was a different story. You know, I'm a hundred percent owner of the SS group and started it, you know, from day one. And, you know, like everybody else, it's, it's my baby, I guess. And I've had a lot harder time trying to let go of the reins in this company. Plus two, I've made myself, unfortunately, I made myself at the center of everything that happened. And so once I decided I wanted to get out of the operations, I had a lot to do. I had a lot to work on because the worst thing you can do is make yourself the center of everything. And so uh, I did hire um, a coach, a GoBro. And so uh, Gary, I think most people know Gary. Fishbaugh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, Man, this guy's like a, like a, like a business whisperer. I keep, he keeps coming up. There's a lot yeah, of guys yeah, that have he, hired um, You know, I like Gary because, you know, he's, he's, and I've had coaches in the past. Most of them were real estate coaches and it was about the blocking and the tackling and the, you know, very, you know, some strategy, but most of it was how to be a better real estate, you know, business development person. Gary, when Gary came in, we look holistically looked at where I was in the business and where I wanted it to go. And the first thing that we we talked about was how in the world do you get out of the way? And 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 if you had asked me before I brought Gary on as a coach, I would have said, hey, I'm, you know, I'm not in every facet of the of the business. I'm just only in certain things. <laughs> But once we started looking at it, I realized that, I mean, I was a lot more entrenched into everything that happened in this business than I should have ever been. So if there's any advice I would give to somebody building their businesses, make sure you're building something that can survive without you, where you're not the center of attention, where you're not the center of everything that happens. Can you can you real quick dissect that a little bit? Where, where might you have thought you were not 
necessarily entrenched that you learned you were? In like what area of your business might there have been like, no, I'm not really involved in that. And then like, holy crap, yes, I am. I'm I'm yeah, a bottleneck I, on this. Accounting, I honestly didn't think I was really involved in the accounting much. I figured it just kind of happens. And then it realizes that, you know, approval processes and information sharing. You don't realize how much people depend on me for information sharing. And, you know, if I decided to, you know, because uh, I'm a CCIM instructor. And so if I just, you know, go teach for a week and I come back, it's almost like no information gets passed to anybody and wow. and so we you know we started using dropbox as our filing systems where now i have a file folder where everything that i think anybody needs to know market reports or anything you know notes that i take i, I start dropping that into those shared folders and giving everybody an opportunity to kind of know what i know not that i know everything but you know i i, I feel like i'm listening to more podcasts and i'm listening to more market information out there and i've got my eye on the you know the the next year to three years and and I want everybody else in the company to know kind of where I think things are heading and so um so yeah so there are a lot of times we'll have we'll just have a, a, a kind of a lunch and learn where I get to kind of present where I think the market is and where I think the company needs to head and so I've tried to, I, I just have to make it a, a uh, have to be very intentional about getting that information out to them, but I also don't want to be the bottleneck of information either, if that makes sense. It does. Our, on the Dropbox thing, that's interesting to me. Is there a push? Is there a push function with that or is it all pull? And I, I mean- no, you gotta you gotta intentionally go in there. It does notice you when somebody's dropped something in a box, but okay. you know, if you, unless you're really paying attention, if you're not sitting at your computer where it flashes up, it really doesn't. But a lot of times, I'll drop an email just saying, "Hey, I, I dropped some really good market information that you're going to want to read," you know. And so it still requires me to do something, and I'm not trying to be 100 percent passive or hands off. But what you the question you asked earlier about where did I find myself being the center of it? Where I found myself was being a little bit of a bottleneck, you know, right. in some way, I'm a bottleneck on a lot of the things that happen. And, you know, some of it was necessary and some of it was unnecessary. And, and really what it all comes back to in all candor, uh, it really comes back to the type of hires that you make, you know, because I still remember working for somebody, you know, I, and I tend to get things done with and without them. And I think there are certain types of people that you hire, good or bad, that, that can't get a lot done unless they do have some supervision or they do have structure or they do, you know, they, they do have some direction. And so some of this comes from the fact that, you know, it's good to hire people who need you, but your whole business can't, can't thrive on, on the leader always pushing people from behind, if that makes sense, or pulling is, people. Is there a trait understand? in the ideal employee for you? Is there something you look for? Like if I could get every employee to have this trait, it would be what? Just desire, a desire. The number one is desire. I mean, I, I I want people to want it. You know, uh, not everybody in the company can have the desire to be a you know a million dollar agent. But for gosh sakes, uh, I need people to come in here and the desires to do the best they can do and to help grow the business or to help you know promote their position and who want to be promoted, who want to move up. And and uh, I find that um, you know that there's just a lot of people who lack that desire a lot more than you think. My calculation is that. Q2, Q3 of next year, 2024, uh, there's going to be a lot of eating for guys that buy distressed assets. What say you? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm in that camp. I do uh, court-appointed receivership work. Most of that comes from the CMBS side. So I track a lot of the delinquent 
agencies. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can see the writing on the wall right now. I, I would have told you in the beginning of the year that I thought it would be, you know, Q3, Q4 of this year, but I was wrong. It it took a little bit longer to get here, but now we're really kind of starting to see, especially on the multifamily side, really seeing a lot of stress on the multifamily side. A lot of people who don't really have a lot of experience in multifamily have gotten out there and their projections were just wrong. Uh, I mean, you just, there's only so much there's only so many times you can keep raising rents. And the problem is, is the expenses on multifamily are growing two and three times faster than rents are. So there's an erosion of NOI. And yeah, I mean, I, I think that you're going to see a lot of that both in multifamily and some other property types. But I agree with you. I think Q1, Q2, I think you'll really start seeing some people barely hanging on certain projects. Not everywhere. There's still some markets out there that are just doing phenomenal. And the market's bailing them out. But there's a lot of, there's a lot of the United States where the market's just not growing fast enough to bail anybody out. It's funny because there's distress in the asset, like you said, under underperforming based on projections. And then there's great performing assets, but terrible debt, distress in terrible. the debt. And that that to me is more where we're going in the next 12 months, I think. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's just going to be debt terms due. It could be a great, really, really good asset. It's performing well. It's fully occupied. The rents are hitting projections, but you know, there's a two, three, or whatever, a hundred basis points increase in the cap rate compared to what you thought it would be. So you're not getting the price yeah. and you leverage to 80, 85%, whatever it might be. And you can't get out of the debt unless you do a call-in. So, And most people who were not in the 08, 09, 2010 era, you know, like I was, and a lot of other people in GoBundance were, they'll tell you that, man, a lot of people lost their property not because they couldn't pay the note, but right. because their loan covenants were broken. Their debt coverage ratios weren't hitting the minimum debt coverage ratio. The LTVs weren't, you know, at the minimum of, of uh, or maximum of 80%. And when the banks and the special servicers come to the borrowers, it doesn't matter whether that real estate's performing or not. A lot of times you have a valuation problem, not necessarily a cash problem. But if it's determined that your, your loan covenants are not being met and the bank asks you to recapitalize the note and you don't have it, then they can put you in technical default, whether you're paying. Oh, that's them. interesting. So you come in at a 1.1 debt service coverage ratio when the target is 1.2 or 1.25. Yeah. The bank could proactively you can be technical default right at that moment. So interesting. Why? What's the incentive on the bank for the bank to go after that? Why would the bank want to repossess or or try to try to? Well, force the and, sale of and most of the times this isn't you know your local community bank. It's going to be more of your your CMBS life companies and that sort of thing. And that's just a requirement to make a loan. Now, if they think it's a temporary issue, they may come back and say, hey, we'll give you three to six months to work it out. You know, if it's a permanent issue, like, hey, you just you just paid too much for this asset two years ago. And, you know, rates are now up, you know, 200 basis points. And so cap rates are going to be up a certain, you know, there's not a dollar per dollar correlation, but there is a correlation, right? There Just is. like everybody made all that money four or five years ago from cap rate compression, right? Yeah. Rates went down, cap rates went down. But when you talk to sellers about, well, cap, you know, rates are up, cap rates should be up. Well, that's not how it works. Well, that's how it worked when it went down. <laughs> and so, when, uh, you know, it's funny, man, because it depends on what side of the ledger you're on as to how your viewpoint is. But 
I've done a lot of lender work and and been, have been in bad spots myself, by the way. I've I've been on the other side where the banks told me that my LTV wasn't enough. And uh, and by the way, you know, you have to submit your financials to your bank and your lenders all the time. They know where you're sitting on cash. And and I watched my what I thought was enough cash to last last a lifetime lasted about six months in in 08 and 09. And you know, the banks left me alone after they after they basically raked all the cash out of my accounts and then they just started leaving me alone. So, but that's what they did, right? When when banks need to deleverage, they use that opportunity of your loan covenants not being met. And they know you're sitting there with, you know, a million, million and a half in cash and they need to deleverage. Well, that's their way to deleverage you, you know, deleverage themselves and deleverage your asset at the same time is to make you burn some of that cash to put your loan covenants in compliance with the term of the note. That's you know? interesting. That's so interesting. So is it is it fair to say that a bank, a community bank or whatever, might do an audit and say, hey, okay, this asset performing at a whatever below DSCR, that's just what I'm stuck on. And look in their account is X, or is it because of the disclosure they know how much you have in cash? In other words, can you avoid it or or protect yourself a bit by just not keeping the cash in the same bank that you have to serve the, the loan with? Well, no, I mean, because it's <laughs> that's another thing we learned in the 08, 09 is and, and anybody watching this that's my age or was in real estate is probably last and global debt obligations. Uh, so when you submit your personal financial statements, which you're required to do, sure. you know, according to your note, at least once a year, and sometimes they'll ask for more than that once. A, you know, sometimes back in 08, 09, and 2010, I think I was submitting my financial statements quarterly along with my global debt obligations. So the bank's not only concerned with my project and that debt on that project, but they're concerned with what other projects do I have that are also not meeting the debt coverage ratio, that are also struggling or, or have negative cash flow because so if the banks think that that you've got other projects that are going to eat into or burn your cash, then they're going to stake claim on that cash as well. So that's how they know that you're sitting on cash. If you're submitting personal financial statements that are true and correct, they're going to show where you have money, regardless of whether it's in their bank or not. This stuff is just, you know, I, I backdoored Forrest Gumped my way into a situation where our assets are all low, low into value long-term debt, which is good, uh, which makes now learning this from you, because I, I hadn't heard it put this way before, makes me feel so much better. But I'll, I'll admit, very easily, like many guys, I could have been pulled in as a GP raising capital for a three-year bridge loan at 78% loan to value uh, on an A-class asset that, you know... It, Hopefully, hopefully the rates don't climb in, in the time in which you know we owe this. Hopefully, it's like the 2017 to 2020, not 21 to 24 kind of thing. But it does give me it. I you know, hey, whoever was looking down to partner with a guy in Mark Hentiman, who's a, a GoBundance guy, yeah. oh yeah, who's Mark. who's been around 20 years doing this and understands these variables, who who survived 08. Because yeah, everything we buy is 55, 60, 65 percent loan to value. Uh, total portfolio is in that range. Maybe it's less now because values have compressed a bit, but we're still well in our, you know, well within our debt coverage ratio, well within our our covenants, if you will. So that's mm -hmm. so interesting. God, that helps me sleep at night. So thanks yeah. for that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and I think where a lot of debt coverage ratio, and by the way, that's what most banks look at. You know, loan to value does mean something, but let's face it, appraisers don't, and, and I was an appraiser for a little while, but appraisers don't always really know what the value is. I mean, they're, we, the brokers always like to, to kid around. You know, we look through the 
the windshield and the appraisers look through the rear view mirror. So they're always looking backwards. And there are a lot of times that they just miss the mark that they don't really know what the market's really doing. And that can be both positive and negative. But, but one thing that the banks do understand that's debt, debt coverage ratio. I mean, there's gotta be a spread. There's gotta be, you know, a spread between what you pay the bank and what the property's stabilized net operating income is. And when a lot of these people go in to refinance their projects and their note, their annual debt service increases by 20 and 25% because of the interest rate, that there's going to be a lot of debt coverage ratios that are not going to cover. Yeah. And, and it'll be there, there possibly will be less than one, 1 1.0. So Oof. there will be, I believe that there will be a lot of people There'll be a lot of banks asking people to recapitalize their their notes. And recapitalize means you need a cash injection to bring the loan amount yep. down enough yep. to where they can get it amortized where it still covers a 25%, you know, 125 or 13. Heck, we're getting quotes now at banks of 130 debt coverage ratio. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. So that's how the banks control, you know, they 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 they'll do most banks will tell you we'll do an 80% LTV or a 130 debt coverage ratio. Well, I can assure you when you start hearing high debt coverage ratios, you the loan to value will never come into play. It'll always be the debt coverage ratio. Yeah, for anybody that's not sure on this, and I, I I'm guessing most understand it, but some may not, but debt coverage ratio, the best way I always describe it is if you got a hundred thousand dollars worth of loan worth of loan payments in a year that you owe the bank, whatever that is divided by 12, the bank wants to make sure if they if they're making if they're keeping you at a 1.2 debt coverage ratio, they have $120,000 in NOI, right? So you can pay the note plus 20%. Correct. Yeah. It's a 20% spread. It's just a cushion. The bank, the more debt coverage ratio a bank wants, the more cushion they believe should be between the annual debt service, which is, you're right, it's your monthly, it's your mortgage payment times 12 is annual debt service. You're right. They want to make sure, and on higher risk properties, that's why the bank wants a higher debt coverage ratio, like an office is a perfect example. If you're, if you're buying a five-story office building with tenants with three years or left on their leases, they're going to require a high debt coverage ratio because they want to make sure that there's enough spread between your net operating income and the annual debt service. So if you lose a tenant or two, if it's a risky property, there's a good chance that you're going to lose a tenant or two. And, you know, so yeah, you may hear a lot higher debt coverage ratio for, for higher risk properties. Wow, man. I, this yeah. is a level of distress I hadn't thought about. The idea that banks could go through, try to, you know, capital, like recapitalize the mortgage, redo the amortization to get it to the debt service and really scrape your cash. Hadn't thought of oh, that as, you know, like oh. that's maybe, maybe I'm being overly simplistic in my thinking on this. <laughs> I, my thought is, no, nope, term is coming due and they just, you know, the loan is, or the you know, they, they, they over leveraged on the loan. So therefore they don't have the, the money to stay in a refinance. They have to, you know, capitalize or refinance. They bring money to the table to refinance. That to me is the clear distress. This distress Maybe other guys are like, of course, but that's new to me. That's not something I had considered. Yeah. And the biggest opportunity that GoBundance guys should look for is not just buying the distressed properties, but the, typically what happens is when people get in distress, the first thing they do is they don't give up their distressed property. They sell off their best property, the ones that are very marketable. And so where we made money in the last downturn is buying quality properties for discounts because some people just had to sell their quality properties, you know, to be able to get the cash to be able to settle their bad properties. That makes sense. I mean, if you don't have the cash to be able to sell off a distressed real estate, which a lot of people don't, they're forced to sell off the really good properties to generate that cash. 
And so last time around, you know, what Warren Buffett said, you know, you know, buy when there's blood in the streets, even if it's your own. And I had to remember that because even at times where the banks were trying to claw a lot of the cash that I had in my accounts, I was still out there trying to buy. And where I was really able to to land some some projects were the good projects of, of investors who had, unfortunately, too many bad projects. And so they had to sell off the good ones to compensate for the bad ones. And uh, and so we were able to pick up some really good projects at, you know, at a modest 15% discount, maybe 15, 20% discount. So that's incredible. Uh, but that's where you really need to look. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's great advice. Great advice. Okay. Uh, one thing I want to ask before we go into the abundance questions sure. is okay. on office. You mentioned that earlier. You ha- It sounds like you have office in your portfolio. Is that accurate? I do. Uh, and we have a lot of it in our man- third-party management portfolio. Um, How is that? How is office going? You know, we don't manage anything in, in downtown. And not that our downtown is huge, but I mean, it is the central business district at one point. But most of the office that we have is doing okay. It's prob- We're probably somewhere in that 80 two to 85% occupancy with some of the tenants with term left. And so, yeah, I think we're doing pretty good, but you know, there are still tenants that are downsized. Uh, one of my largest tenants in my portfolio is EMC insurance and they're going from 10,000 square feet. They had 62 employees in that 10,000 square feet before COVID and they're downsizing to, um, 2,100 square feet. Wow. And they have only six people that are coming into the office every day. The other six to seven people that they're keeping on staff are working remotely. And and I thought, well, you mean working from home? And the guy that's out of Iowa told me, because no, you know, one of the things we learned, if you can work from home, you can work from anywhere. And, and that was the first time I had heard it, you know, outside of listening to other podcasts, but it wasn't the last time. And I've heard that. So telling you what's about to happen is all these employees that will not, that will refuse to come back to work. A lot of these larger companies, because I'm talking with them, a lot of these larger companies are going to start out, uh, start outsourcing those jobs to anybody, anywhere. And that's why the if you can work from home, you can work from anywhere. So in other words, if I'm going to go to virtual employees and I'm going to go to the best employees, so the ones that refuse to come back to the office, they're gone. They're going to be on unemployment here for too long. So yeah. Yeah, that's true. Right? What's the yeah, if I can get a great yeah. person out of Chicago, why do I need somebody in Jackson, right? Yeah. That's going to yeah. sit at home in Jackson if they're not if they're not that great. So Yeah. Wow, so really um, and 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 I've heard that mentioned before again, again it's, you know, if 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 you can work from home, you can work from anywhere. I mean, what's technology yeah. is technology. So with and, with office in a year with this distress, do you see office being a major opportunity, or is it something you got to be really careful with? The problem with office, uh, well, I answer that. I think it's an opportunity, but the problem with office is is that you really have to have deep pockets for office. You know, you take up five story office building anywhere that class A that's really good. You know, when when you got to operate that building, you know, whether it's 40% occupied or 90% occupied, it's got a lot of, it's got core elevators, it's got core restrooms, you got to clean the lobby. And the biggest challenge with office, and even in a good market, the biggest challenge with office are what the, you know, TI, tenant improvements and commissions. They're big. You know, you can spend $50 a square foot outfitting a 10,000 square foot space sign a five-year lease, the tenant leave, and the, and the new tenant wants to move in. And guess what? They want another 30 or $40 a square foot spent on their space. And you can't always amortize that over five years and make the tenant pay for it. Some of it is just the cost of doing business. So 
that's the biggest challenge for office right now is when you have to retenant these spaces, you just spend so much money. You're always recapitalizing an office building. But the other challenge is going to be for office is getting financing. There's just a lot of banks that are so worried and turned off with office. So I don't think that for the investors that are looking for very entrepreneurial property, office may be it, but I would not expect great financing terms when you go buy it. What about redevelopment and two, because we have a housing shortage. Is that is that sure. an opportunity or no? There is. Uh, I was on a panel at a distressed assets conference in Miami earlier this year, and um, one of the lenders actually brought this up, and I thought it was interesting that there a lot of lenders are no longer really looking at a lot of office conversions for multifamily unless it's in certain markets because the feasibility to turn a traditional office building into multifamily is just has they've just not seen it be feasible it's just so much loss so take a hundred thousand square foot office building and assume you're going to convert that into multifamily you might lose 30 percent of that office building in in inefficiency and when you start looking at it you know it's just has not been feasible now the other side of that coin is is when the office markets when when they get down at the rock bottom prices right. maybe it becomes feasible you know I so I, I, maybe there's just not enough distress, you know. I mean, look at what's happening in San Francisco right now, and some of the office and the and the hospitality properties that people are just giving those properties back at this point. I mean, would there be an opportunity for someone to convert those? Because quite honestly, if someone could probably pick those up for twenty cents on a dollar, it may be worth it at that point. It's such a sad thing. Beautiful city, but terrible, terrible politics. The yeah. the uh, I just saw yesterday an article from the mayor. It's, so so classic bitching and moaning to the about the the like the homeless coalition it's like a like a commission essentially the federal fed, a federal judge blocked the city from clearing like tent communities of homeless yeah. people because the city first needs to provide uh, another like thousand spaces for the homeless before they can clear out where they are. So the a federal judge says you're blocked. And the lobbying interest in this was the whoever the homeless coalition is. So this mayor who allowed this shit to happen, right, who allowed it to get to this point, is now boldly pointing the finger at this judge and this commission for essentially doing what she created. It just blows my mind. And that city, I've said it, that city is at risk of becoming the next Detroit. It, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, uh, and you're right. It starts with just being too lenient and not protecting I'm sorry, but the first thing you should be doing is pr uh, protecting property owners and property owners' rights. And that's where it starts. And um, when you decide that that homeless, and again, I have a, a big heart for that. And, you know, and, and believe sure. me, I want to help people and everybody go abundance wants to help people. But you have to protect your your property owners. And there's got to be rules and regulations that exist and law and order that has to exist. And once you just deny people that and people start running for the hills, a city is a hard thing to turn around. You just cannot turn a city like that around in a short period of time. And I, and think about all the people that have invested just millions and hundreds of millions of dollars there and are just walking away. That's the shocking thing. It's when it's I grew up in when I grew up on Long Island, I've told this before on this podcast. So apologies to people who've heard me say it, but. Um, growing up on Long Island, when we would go to, to the city, to New York City, it was like, do not go to Times Square. That was always the, you know, like, stay away from Times Square. It was dangerous, drug ridden. It wasn't a place, especially after dark. Don't go to Times Square. Giuliani, love him, hate him, whatever. But his move there was to start with low level crime 
and then let that sort of clean up the high level crime. So I'm not going after the, the murderers and the and the big crime. I'm going after the busket boys and the you know corner drug dealers and that sort of thing. And he would just clean the streets up. And then the bigger crime kind of walked away. And I mean, Times Square, although it's at risk now, Times Square today is not what it was 30 years ago sure. when I was a kid or 40 years ago when I was a kid. So it's uh it is it, but it took a decade yeah. to get there, you know. But it also took, you know, my fear is because I've had this conversation too, you know, when you look at the history of cities turning the corner. It took drastic measures. It took yeah, somebody definitely. getting out there and making some real wild cowboy decisions to get that done. I'm not sure where we are at this point in time. Anybody will ever allow you to be that drastic. I mean, yeah. a perfect example is the one you just mentioned about the getting rid of Tent City, and now you got a judge that's blocking that. I don't believe that you can make those kind of moves that it took 30 years ago and 40 years ago to turn a city around. I'm not sure you'll ever be able to do that. And if you can't take those drastic measures, I'm not sure what hope a city has. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, we are very polarized. So, wow, man, interesting stuff. I want to be yeah. respectful your time let's let's dive into these go abundance questions so sure. we have six, All right. six six pillars bucket list adventure horizontal income age-defying health genuine contribution authentic relationships and extreme accountability in which of those six do you feel like right now you are crushing it uh genuine contribution feel like crushing it i guess i do a lot of uh non-profit work and prison ministry work and so i, I kind of feel like i'm doing that in genuine relationships i mean i feel like i've got some really good relationships in my life and uh, my wife my kids close friends uh, we spend a lot more time probably together today than we did even just 10 years ago. And some of that has to do with the fact that our kids are older now and have kind of their own lives, I guess, until they need money. But yeah, so we're able to kind of get out and really spend some time with good friends and family. So I love it, man. That's awesome. like everything else. I have to be very intentional about it, right? You know, if you don't put it on your schedule and it just seems like it, you know, it doesn't happen. Sure, sure. Prison ministry. Where did that come from? If you don't mind me asking real quick. <laughs> well, our church that we were members of had a drive about about 10 years ago that, you know, get out and do missionary work and do some good things. And our church softball team decided that it was somebody had offered us to go out to the central Mississippi correctional facility and play softball with some inmates. And so, you know, we were all nervous. And so we, uh, we said, we'll pack it up. So we went out there and played softball and it was probably one of the best experiences I had probably ever had. I mean, it was a lot of, you know, I mean, were there people out there that I was scared? Well, of course, you know, sure. <laughs> but there were also a lot of great people. So we started going out there probably once every, once a month. And then once a month turned into kind of like once every two to three weeks. And I didn't always go. We had plenty of people that could, could make it sometimes and couldn't make it others. And then while we were out there, because, you know, we, we were a church softball team, we made it a point to, you know, do some mission work while we were there and pray for people. And, you know, and, and, and I'll just be honest with you. I am a Christian person, but I'm not an ultra religious wearing on my sleeves. I mean, you know, I'm just not outwardly, you know, just not outwardly with it. You know, certainly if somebody came in and, and wanted me to help them, I'd love to help them and all that kind of stuff. And I'm just not kind of one of those that just could go up to someone and say, hey, let me pray for you. So it, you know, it took me a little while to warm up to some of that. But then they started asking us to come out there and hold a service once a month. And then that turned into once a week. And so now we've got, you know, stuff going on with the men's side of the prison, the women's side of the prison. So, and so I'm on a leadership team for that. And we've been doing that really consistent now for about six or seven years. And I mean, we've got stories of people who got out and we've gotten jobs when they got out. And, and I mean, they're just living a, a phenomenal life right now and turned around. So I feel really blessed to be a part of that. And, and like I said, it's not something I always offer, but it's something that I'm glad to be 
be a part of. And if somebody had not pushed me to do it, uh, I would have never done it. I love it, Matt. True rehabilitation. There's probably a dozen guys in GoBundance that I could think of that have been in prison at some point in their life, you know, and have oh. turned themselves around for, you know, in very, in many ways. So, wow, man, that's inspiring. Yeah. Which of those pillars, in which of those pillars could you use more support or accountability? <laughs> Definitely in uh, age-defying health. You know, I, I'll go through periods of my life where I'm in good health and I'm losing weight and, you know, and but I'll be honest with you, probably overall, you know, I, I need to lose another 20 pounds and I need to eat better. And, you know, with having, this is purely an excuse and it's not even a good one, but with having three sons in the house that eat like anything that they want, it just, you know, and I mean, it's, it's nothing for our kids yeah. to drive to insomnia cookie at nine o'clock at night and come back with, you know, seven hot cookies. And, and you know, and again, it's a terrible excuse, but- Holy, but yeah. wait, wait, wait. Is that a real place? Insomnia cookies? Insomnia cookies? Yeah, it's a national chain. I've never uh, heard. I was going to say that is an amazing name and I want to buy one. It is That's a national right. chain and everywhere that I've ever gone, they're killing it. And the uh, you see them a lot in the uh, college towns because they know that <laughs> you see a lot of things in college towns. That's what I've learned after traveling, to, you know, because these kids have more money to spend than I ever had when I was in college, by the way. so but Wow. Look at this. Based in New York, Philadelphia. It was started in 2003. Both students, while well, these guys are students at the University of Pennsylvania, that is 240. 40 plus stores. They're owned by Krispy Kreme. The oh, Krispy that Kreme makes a lot of sense, right? <laughs> holding, I'm sure they, they rolled up to them, but yeah, JAB Holding Company is the is the owning entity. Yeah. That's interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's yeah, so a it's, great anyway. name. God, yeah. sorry, go ahead. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, Ace Defying Health is, there's no question that's the one that I struggle with the most. And, you know, which really, you know, which really stinks because, you know, it, we talked about this earlier in this conversation about how hard I've worked to get to where I am today. The last thing I'd ever want to have happen is here it is my wife and I trying to spend our golden years together and traveling and doing all the things we want to do. And, you know, that's not going to mean much if I've got health issues and, and, you know, can't even get on a plane to travel overseas because of, so, yeah. So I believe me, I, I challenge myself and I'm certainly not happy with where I am today. And and I probably need more accountability on that one pillar than anything else. I don't think the other pillars, I struggle with, I may not be where I want to be, but I don't think I struggle with that as much as I do the health pillar. Makes so. sense, man. It's tough. It definitely is tough. All right. Yeah. Uh, in what area of your life, maybe you just answer it. Are you potentially flirting with disaster? Ooh, probably health. I don't think there's any question. Um, golly, I don't, I'm trying to try to think, um, you know, I certainly ready to get out there and start buying again. I've been been three years where I've not bought a, a lot because I've kind of felt like the market was way overheated and uh, probably missed some opportunities. But at the same time, I'm glad that I'm cashed up right now as well. But um, but you know, just to making sure that I don't get out there too early to buy because and I definitely have some you know. I guess I've got, you know, the desire to get out there and buy. And, and so every time I look at something, I have to remind myself I need to take a step back and make sure that, you know, I'm only going to buy triples and home runs right now because the last thing I want to do is to burn my cash on, you know, singles and doubles when I think that the home runs will be out in the next 12 months. So I guess that's probably where I just need to slow down and remind myself that the best deals don't come right away. The best deals come at the bottom of the market. Great point. Great point. Okay. Uh, and what specific way has GoBundance impacted your life? 
definitely getting out there. The, the look, the seven to eight is is just great. I mean, I I, I love hearing people's stories. I love hearing how you know where they were and where they uh, where they're where they are today versus where they were ten years and fifteen years ago. It's very helpful. You know, it definitely. I, I always say in my GoPod that you know it. it there's sometimes I listen to Go Bunnett stuff and it makes me feel like, golly, I should have should have done more, should have you know should have moved the needle more. And then other times that I just get so much wisdom and and, and understanding. And so uh, there's no doubt that listening to other people's stories of where they were and where they are and where they're headed uh, is very very helpful. And um, and love the seven to eight program. Uh, love hearing from you know Pat and. Tim and David and all and all the GoBundance guys and so uh, so there's no doubt there's and, and I feel like it is a great community um, and I feel like that there are a lot of people that 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 kind of like me they love looking out over the next year or two or three figuring out where the opportunities are going to be so I love uh, when GoBundance puts out a lot of the market forecast and people who get on there and say, Hey, this is kind of what I think is going to happen. And, and yeah, I mean, there are a lot of times that I make investment decisions based on, on some of those conversations. So Same. absolutely loved every year. I'm in go buns. Same. So. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. Great, great insight. Uh, what advice might, might you give to a new or prospective member of go abundance? Plug in, plug in immediately. Uh, even though I, <laughs> Even though I haven't done as much as as I would have liked to have done, but I definitely would say plug in, uh, absorb as much information as you can, find uh, a mentor, somebody in GoBundance that's maybe 10, 15, 20 years older or further down the road and, you know, see what, um, uh, definitely join a GoPod. Uh, and if they're young, if they're young, you know, try to join a GoPod with maybe some people that are a decent amount older. And oh, it's great learn from them, and and you know, and I know that that I know that they like to put you in GoPods, and I and I understand why they do. They want to put you in GoPod with like-minded people and same age, same you know, kids' age, and same maybe net worth. But if you can maybe get in a second GoPod with some older, you know, more seasoned people, right? <laughs> it yeah. might help. You know, I think there's just so much that uh, that people that have been in this business can offer. You know? you know, it's funny. There was a post in the group uh, today or yesterday. I saw uh, somebody saying, hey, here's all the things I'm doing in GoBundance. You know, what are you all doing? Like uh, how much participation? And I was surprised by how many people I'm I'm in two GoPods. I was surprised by how many people are in two GoPods. Um, yeah. A guy, uh, one of the guys uh, formed a health GoPod, like specifically for some health goals that they have. And three or four other guys had shared goals. So that's the focus of that pod. That's really, it's, it's a great point. Like I, I, I do I always say that I think the experience is made with the GoPod. To your point, though, there's a lot of there's so many other things that just yeah, a seven to eight call or like when we went through COVID, navigating the shift, all those series, oh, yeah, were, yeah. right? That were extremely helpful. Um, those things are great, but the the GoPod is is the foundational part. Now I've been we're about the same tenure. I've been in the same GoPod from the beginning. Have you been? The key to life it isn't money, it's happiness. And when you measure how happy you are, you actually become even more happy. Our friends at GoBundance, the tribe of millionaires, use a very specific tool to measure their happiness. It's called the Life Happiness Index. And you can have it too. 
Go over to GoBundance.com slash LHI and take your Life Happiness Index assessment. You'll rate yourself in multiple categories on exactly how happy you are and get a custom output for you specifically that you can use in developing whatever goals you have for your life. GoBundance is the tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. And the tool GoBundance members use at the base of all of that is the Life Happiness Index. Get out there and grab life big. No, unfortunately... <laughs> We've, uh, uh, the two GoPods, we had one GoPod that, that, I mean, literally after the first year, three of our five left. Uh, uh, Jeff Knight is uh, still in the GoPod with me, and he and I were in the original one. Then we went to another GoPod, and that one got dismantled. Mm. <laughs> so yeah. that because a lot of people had left. And then Jeff was in a second GoPod, and so he invited me to his second GoPod. And, uh, and, and we've been together uh, they were together about a year, year and a half before I got involved, which I've been involved now about a year. And that GoPod's great. I mean, yeah. we we learn a lot and we do a lot together. Not not physically, but we we talk a lot and sure. we kind of know each other's you know ins and outs. And uh, you know, I had contemplated maybe selling my business, and and now I'm not 100 percent sure what I'm going to do. Just the third party part of my business, third party management and brokerage, but. So I was able to navigate some of that through my GoPod and really listen to, to some things they had to, to say and offer. And so you absolutely, I would say plug in. If you're new, plug in and get to a GoPod. And if it's not working, find another one. Um, yeah, I, I, when you I, get I, to the right one, you're going to know and and it's going to be extremely beneficial. I feel like you and I treat membership similarly. I just, I just was talking to a guy about this where like, I, you know, I think some people feel like when they join, like they have to follow a program or do a certain thing. But I think you and I treat it like, no, no, no I, I just want to be in this neighborhood. I want to be in this in this room with these neighbors and these people, and I want to have the the ability to interact. And yeah, like you said, uh, yeah, okay, the season of me and these five, four other guys that wasn't to be, but me and Jeff stayed together. We went here, that I, but I just the compounding value I get. Like I, I'm the I'm in my pods and I go to events. That's yeah. it. Like I, I don't do a ton of micro tribe stuff. I don't do a lot of the calls, the seven to eights and all that. Like my kids are young. So bedtime is right when that stuff happens, you know? Yeah. So, but I still, you know, if I wanted to, I could watch on replay, but to your point, like I, or to the point I'm making, I guess it sounds like you are the same as me. It's like people are like, well, why do you re up every year? I'm like, cause I just, it's like paying my taxes on my house. Like I, I, I'm in that neighborhood. I get value, you know, in varying degrees, varying degrees of participation, but just being there is better than not. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. And, and, and just, yeah, it, just so many people with various backgrounds and, and people that have something to offer and, and it's just great. I mean, I, I, I love the, I, I mean, if it wasn't for go bonus, I probably wouldn't get on Facebook, be honest with you. Um, <laughs> and I, I'm serious. And, yeah. and, and obviously Facebook knows that I'm on go bonus because you know, oh, you I, I don't think I even get a whole lot of other Facebook feeds <laughs> other than GoBundance. <laughs> Zuckerberg, man, he's all over it. All right, let's get this last question in here before we got to let you go. Sure. Nine of nine of clubs, nine of spades, excuse me. No, clubs. I always get those two confused. What's something you've done that you would try to dissuade others from doing? In in anything or just real estate related? Anything, anything. I, I'll, I'll start with real estate. Uh, you know, a lot of people in an effort to make more money, we want to always jump into the third party management business. And so, and anytime I see that, I always want to caution everybody. Cause I mean, I, I have made plenty of money being in a third party property management business. And it's nice to say you got so many employees and you get, but it is a lower margin business. And if you really want to be an investor, just go be an investor 
And once you hit that third-party brokerage and that third-party management world, you're 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 basically at that point kind of putting your investment career, you know, certainly to the back burner is what I would say. Uh, so I always, when I meet with people, you know, if they want to be an investor, but they want to create a real estate business, and I, was, I always just caution them and say, look, that's great. But, you know, if you want to be an investor, go be an investor. Focus all your time and effort on that one thing. So, um, and Anything then, in life? Yeah, go ahead. In life? No, anything, yeah, anything, any other? You, it sounded like you had another thought on what you would yeah, dissuade people. You know, um, I enjoy yourself, allow yourself to be happier earlier. I think is hard charging entrepreneurs, and, and I still do it today at 54 years old. I always think that in the next five years, I'm going to be so much further ahead. And, and at that point, I can go take my you know, trips and, and be happier and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you just got to be happy with where you are at the time. And, and even though I still struggle through that, I'm a lot better today than I was 10 years ago. Allow yourself to be happy in where you are now and content. Doesn't mean that you can't still be a hard charger and want to improve your net worth to, you know, 10x or whatever, but learn to just be happy and content where you are at the same time. I mean, you can do both. And yeah. I think sometimes people just put their lives on hold. It seemed like every all the time, you know, and and you know, you do have to treat yourself along the way. And um, you know, and 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 I wish if I could go tell my 25-year-old self that, you know, I, I I would have probably probably been a little happier and, and spent a little bit more money along the way. Who cares if my net worth is 20% less today if I could have, you know, taken, you know, a lot of a lot more trips and, and and been a little, you know, had my foot off the gas a little bit along the way and rather than always trying to move the goalpost further and further away. So that's great advice, man. So you got like, these are like great sound clips too. So I appreciate okay. that. Um, Brian, where can people learn more about you, your business, website, social media handle, anything sure. you want to direct yeah. to? Um, well, uh, the easiest thing to do is uh, to email me. It's Brian, B-R-I-A-N at Estes, E-S-T-E-S group, G-R-O-U-P dot net, N-E-T. Um, who sees this? Just nothing but go abundance people. No, no, it's just a public podcast. So you'll okay, get, all right. Well, yeah, I'll get, get my cell phone number, but I tell you what, I'll just leave it with my uh, leave the email. Yeah, leave the email address to be fine. But yeah, smart, so, smart uh, man. <laughs> Honestly, dude, one of my favorite episodes. This was really, really interesting and fascinating. So it's such a pleasure to get to know you. Such a yeah. such a perk for me to be able to get to know guys through this medium. So thanks for jumping on it. Thanks for being so open. Yeah, absolutely, Jamie. Thank you again, and I hope uh, everybody gets something out of this podcast from. So, hundred yeah. percent. Thank you. Appreciate it.